say that this, this section really has made me pray. It's one of those, those sections where you've really got to decide whether you believe this or not. And it's, I realise it's easy just to get into the habit of coming to church and nodding to Christian truth. But this is where it really does get real. I'm not suggesting that anywhere else in the Bible it's not as real. It's just sometimes, and maybe it's, for me it was just smack, bang, this. We're playing for keeps. Even to the point now where, as I've been praying through it this week, it has changed the way I live. Uh, and it should do that. And we should expect nothing less if this is God's word, that it will change the way we think, the way we live, the things that we live for. And I'm not going to make any excuses for God and his choice of words here. I'm just going to show you who he is and what he says. Is that fair enough? So your problem isn't with me. You probably need to take it up with the Lord if you don't like what this is saying. I don't get to define God. God gets to define me. That's by the very nature of the fact he is God. Now this is a great chapter of the Bible if you're confused about who your creator really is. If there's any confusion, you won't have it by the end of this. This is a great chapter of the Bible if you're confused and unsure what it, was he, what it is he wants you to do. That will be very plain by the end of this chapter. And it's, it's great if you're struggling to keep going. If for you every day in your Christian faith is a struggle. If you wonder whether you're even a Christian. This is a great diagnosis here today. So I'm going to get straight in and tell you that what we've got here is like a battle scene at the end of a big film. Some of you saw the Narnia films. Do you remember that from a few years ago? You know, there's uh, always at the, the end of the film, there's a massive, big, decisive battle where all the things come into play and everything gets dealt with. Well, think Narnia, and I want you to just set the scene. I want you to think, down on the ground, there's the evil queen with all her forces. They've been living at large, doing whatever they want. She's the pretender to the real and true throne. But time is short. It's all about to come to an end. Down in the valley, they think they're invincible. It looks as if evil is winning. It looks as if lies are going to have the, the last say. It looks as if they're in control. But then, up on the hill... The true king arrives. Remember in the film it was Aslan, a massive lion, and he just steps over the brow of the hill. And you suddenly realise that there's about to be a change of the tide. Things aren't going to be the same now the king turns up. Aslan is standing there with all his forces arrayed behind him, and he's about to get to roll up his sleeves and get busy. He's come to reclaim what is rightfully his, his throne. But just before all hell breaks loose. He issues a last warning. He sends out his speakers, they go out and they project the message, quick, don't turn a deaf ear to this, my victory is inevitable, I'm coming to reclaim what is mine, respond before it's too late. Now those are the layers that we've got in this chapter. In this chapter we've got King Jesus standing there is an enemy in, on his territory. He sends out a declaration of his intent to claim back what is his and to do right and to put right. And then there's, if you can call it that, because it isn't really, there's the messy battle. But it's not a battle because it's not difficult. That's basically the structure. And that's where I'm going to take you through. So verses one, we'll split it into verses 1 through to 6, verses uh, 7 through to 13, um, and then verses... Uh, 14 through to 20, okay? So number one, Jesus is coming back to reclaim what is his, verses 1 to 6. And I'll read those verses. 
Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Notice it says there, not a lamb, little look. Can you see that there, verse, verse 1? Then I looked and there standing before me was a lamb. No, what does it say? The lamb. Capital letters, well spotted Patrick. The lamb. Which might sound a little bit woolly to you, but it's not. Because in the book of Revelation we've seen that Jesus is the conquering king who suffered in his people's place. He was treated as a lamb to be slaughtered, that he may rescue and redeem his people. And now he's not weak, meek, Jesus, gentle, meek and mild. He is the conquering lamb, coming to reclaim what is here, uh, what is rightfully his and here. Now I hope you get Jesus right. This immediately tells us that the claptrap we're going to hear over the Christmas period that Jesus is just a nice guy from history who was born tamely into a manger isn't telling the full story he is no mere good moral teacher he is not one amongst many he is the lamb he is the one who claims total allegiance over every single life on planet earth, your life, my life and he's standing Plenty of times in the New Testament we're told that Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. But this time, he's coming to do business. He's standing. He is standing, ready to reclaim what is his. He's standing. 2,000 years since he's been. Who knows when he's going to come, when this date will come. It might be 3,000. It might be tomorrow. It might be before Christmas. All those presents you bought are wasted. It might be soon. But when the time is up, He's going to come. And look who's coming with him. He's brought all of the heavenly throng. This picture of him here on Mount Zion is is as if he's bringing all the weight of his victory. All his victory spoils are coming with him. So we've got the 24 elders who we learned are representative of all his people. We've got 144,000, which is a symbolic number to represent all those Old Testament um, people and New Testament people who put their faith in the promises of God. Not one of them will be missing. All of them will be there and they're pictured with him, his gang, with King Jesus. And it's like party time. It's absolutely amazing. We're going to come to the singing in a minute. But all his people, they're marked with a seal on their head and their heart of the, of the Lamb and of the Father. So what does this immediately tell us about God's people? If you're one of God's people who has respect, responded in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus, he knows there ain't a chance that you're going to get forgotten or get left out. You are marked. You're not going to be left behind. It's one of those things. It's better than the US Army. You know, the US Army have this saying, we don't leave our men behind. No, Jesus says, I know who you are. I know how many there are. You will not be left behind. It was Jesus in John 10 who said to the Father, I won't lose a single one of the ones you've given me. 
So Jesus stakes his reputation on this. It's as if the Lord Jesus says to God the Father, he says, you know that Steve Casey? Oh, what a shambles. Oh, what a t- shambles. I know his sin. I know his stupidity. I know that he's prone to wander. I know that he makes bad choices. I know that Steve Casey is slow to grow and slow to pray. But listen, I won't lose him. No matter how deep a pity crawls into, I'm not going to lose him. Now, I don't know what your week's been like. I don't know whether you've been crawling in and out of pits. You've definitely been tempted to, whether you have or you're not. But if you claim the promises of Jesus, he will not let you go. He has got you. If you're a Christian, you're safe, you're secure. You're marked and you're sealed and you're kept. And when this starts to sink in, what were they doing? Verse 2. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So this is a song that only believers can sing. It's a song of their experience, of the fact that God has saved them through Jesus Christ. You can imagine them on the top of the hill, King Jesus, ruling the path. There they're all standing there. We're with that guy. He's our man. He called and saved me. Isn't he awesome? I can't believe I'm here, but he fixed it for me. They're going mad. Forget the terraces. Forget the 10,000 watching X Factor last night. This lot are singing of a deep reality that isn't fading and isn't slipping away. Nothing I've done has got me here. He marked me. He sealed me. He put his hand upon me. And I've got this. You know, we say we're only singing when we're winning. Can I tell you, if you belong to Jesus, you're always winning. Always. Listen, I know there are times when you have just a terrible week. And just getting in through them doors is agony. And you desperately don't want anybody to talk to you. Because you'll either flip out at them, or you'll burst into tears. And you stand in there, and you know you should be singing, but you don't want to sing. But you do want to sing, but you don't. And it's like anguish for you. Can I tell you, in faith, what should you do? Sing! Because whatever may be crushing in and makes you feel like it's defined you and got you, it cannot take these things from you. It cannot take the reality that Jesus has named you and has claimed you. So what you do is you sing away those other things that are trying to take Jesus' place of priority in your life. You sing them away by saying, Lord Jesus, this is what you've done. And on that day, they sang a new song. I know it's hard and stuff doesn't always work and there's grief and disappointment. In faith, sing as only believers can do. Only believers can sing like this. Because only believers have experienced it. And so some of you, well... Some of you haven't started to sing yet. Because there's other things in your life that you need to sing about. And as I was reflecting on this today, I was thinking to myself, I would love you all to be there singing on that day. I'd love it. I would absolutely love it. I want you there. How are you going to get there? And it isn't going to be by doing the next things. And I don't want you to get confused here. 
There are actually four things that come up in this following verse that say these are marks of Christians. But don't think you get there, you get singing this song by doing them. You sing this song because of what Jesus has done for you. So let's see these four things that mark out the people who are with Jesus are standing around the mountain. Can you see them in verse 4 onwards? These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever it goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God uh, and to the Lamb. And there was no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So these are the characteristics that have been growing and being marked in these who are standing with Jesus. First of all, it talks about um, not being spiritually adulterous. There's a massive theme that runs through the Bible about uh, how Israel in the Old Testament were to stay faithful to the Lord and so often they were described as people who were adulterous, spiritually unfaithful. Remember what adultery is. Adultery is taking your love and faithfulness that is due to one person, taking it and giving it to another. You see that? Spiritual adultery, taking your love and faithfulness for which you were made to engage with the Lord with, for him to be the lover of your soul, taking that and saying, what else could I worship, adore and praise and pursue and look to for my salvation? And Israel, they tried that again and again and again. Their eyes were always scanning around looking for something to set it on. And they were like, where you get this? Then we'll be like them and we'll be wonderful. And they're being unfaithful to the Lord in the midst of it. What is the mark of somebody who is going to be standing with Jesus? It is that suddenly faithfulness to Jesus becomes so precious. They love him. That's the number one test of a Christian. Many of you have had me yell at you long enough that you can recite some of the truths of the Christian faith. You might even sit there with your Bible on your lap and your notepad and write them down. But this is the clincher. Do you love Jesus? The thought of being unfaithful to him, does that pain you? Do you regret the times when you just dived into your sin? Can I tell you what? genuine repentance looks like repentance some of you have come to me and said yeah I made that silly mistake it was a really bad thing to do and I'm really sorry I did it which basically means that messed up my life I'm sorry I did it I won't do it again that isn't repentance repentance is I've hurt my Lord forget what it did to me it's dishonoured him what was I thinking I've made him a small thing Christian is marked as somebody who wants to be faithful to Jesus. Second of all, and quicker, they follow him. Notice that. You see that there. I love this. They follow him wherever. Well done. Where is it? I've got to get this right. Um, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Any of you in this room can follow Jesus a bit until it hurts or until he t- tries to take you someplace where you don't want to go. But the mark of a believer is they say, I'm going to go wherever you say. You're in the driving seat. You're the one. You're God. I'm not. I trust in you. And there's always times in which we think, hold on, it feels better to do it this way. It feels better to go this way. And it could be on the topic of sex, or money, or bitterness, or relationships. And you've got screaming in your head the ideas of the world, your own ideas, that says, it feels better to do it. And the Lord says, go this way. And it's in that moment when you decide whether or not you trust him or not. Do you trust him that with his eternity of experience, he knows better than you and loves you more? Or do you, with your past record of poor choices, think that you know better than God? 
Now you see, it's at the point of the most difficult decisions, when it runs counter to what we think in our fallenness, that you show whether or not you're one of his people. Because what do you do? You follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And it's always going to be a point of, of struggling back in there. Do you trust him? These guys did. Next up, they have been purchased exclusively for, by Jesus. They're redeemed. He had put his mark upon them and said, you're mine. So I go and buy myself an ice cream and I hold my ice cream and I bought it for me. I didn't buy it for you, lovely lady wifey. I didn't buy it for you. I bought it for me. I don't want you to use it for your purposes. I want you to use it for me. Or I'm me for me. Get it? Jesus buys his family, his people, his children and says, mine. And you'll always be miserable if he's bought you and you're trying to live for you rather than him. You'll always be miserable. Some of you, you know you love the Lord and you've been to those periods where you were just making poor choices. What's more, you knew it. Would you be described as joyful or miserable? Miserable. Because you believe who you are has been changed. Don't try and live what you're not. Be who he has made you. I bought you. And fourthly, you love the truth. Can you see that there in verse 6? Hold on, I keep picking the wrong bit. Sorry, verse 5. No lie was found in their mouths. Listen, we're all liars. It doesn't mean that these are people who never tell lies. It means in the context of the book of Revelation, they are people who love the truth about God, this world, that they live by it. They're prepared, even at personal cost, to speak the truth of God's word to people. They hate lies. They love God's truth. Now, all of this comes, we need to make sure we get this. These are characteristics of people who've been changed around by Jesus. We get his blessing by his grace. He gives it. It's a testimony of his beauty, not ours, that we get it given to us. It's all of grace. Do you believe that? Some of you try to do these things. Oh, tick number one. I'm all right with the Lord. I can sing loudly on Sunday. No! These things, your performance, your actions, are not the thing that shape uh, and condition your relationship with the Lord. He says you're mine. But as you grow in that, these things will become more and more apparent. Can I ask you, has that happened to you? (coughs) As much as our world tries to tell us we're awesome, we're not. In fact, I could flick through any newspaper and any page in your diary and you could pick whichever page you like and we could point to it to show you're not awesome. We're not awesome. We're spiritually lost and blind. And so we're not going to be deserving of standing with the king. But he does everything that's necessary to mean that us, even us, even we, can stand with him. Have you received him? Are you living with him? Can I tell you, if you're not, or haven't been, or been in a spiritual slump, today's a really good day to put that right. Today's a really good day to say, I want to stand with the king on the basis of his grace. That was my longest point. Don't panic. Let's go to number two. That's on the mountain, looking down. This is the king who's come to reclaim. But next up we find there's a final warning, a declaration that gets sent out in verses 6 through to 13. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth 
to every nation, tribe, language and people, he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. Now, I understand from military strategy that if you're going to have a a victory, the very best way to have a victory over your enemy is a surprise attack. So what you do is you get all your forces in place, you don't let the enemy know you're coming, you don't let them know the size and your muscle power, you sneak up and while they're snoozing, bang, flatten them. That's if you want to have a victory over your enemies because you care nothing for them and you want to win victory at all costs. But what about if you're desperate that somebody is headed for disaster and you are desperate for them to not be on the receiving end of that disaster. How about if my next door neighbour, actually it wouldn't work because my next door neighbours their house is fixed to mine. Imagine if Anthony and Elaine find their house just down the street from ours, and I see smoke rising from their roof. What kind of person would I be if I nonchalantly stroll on up, it's the middle of the night, don't want to wake anybody up, Anybody there? You're about to burn a line. Would you like to come down? No. I pick up the sledgehammer that is strategically placed just inside my porch. I pick it up. I lay it down the street. I ring and I shout. I get bring my choir of angels along to scream and shout. Chuck rocks at the window. Smash the door down. You're going to burn a That is not being rude. That is being loving. Now they're people I like. Jesus does that for his enemies. He doesn't sneak up upon them. And here we see three angels who who shout really loudly. They're sent out. King Jesus coming to reclaim. Standing on the hill. Need a drink. King Jesus standing on the hill ready to reclaim but he sends out three angels, and he declares to his enemies a warning. Can I tell you that tells you something about the character of God? It really does. In, when it says in the Bible, he wishes wills that no one would perish, it may, brings him no delight to flatten wicked people and give them over to their own failure. It brings him glory, because he is glorified every time sin is punished. Every time wickedness is exposed, shown, and he deals with it rightly, fairly, justly, and appropriately, Everybody goes, you're cool. He's glorified one way or another. Whichever happens, whether you respond or not, he's glorified. On that last day, he will not lack a choir saying, you're awesome. 
But it shows us that though he is not going to lack glory, though his glory will not be diminished, it shows his compassion and his heart that he goes out and he says, Turn! Turn! Why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So he sends out these three angels. First one, simple message there. Verse 7. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has the heavens, uh, so who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Fear God. That's the declaration. Fear God. And after much study and digging into all the words and all the background and reading the big books and listening to lots of clever people with big brains, I came up and understood that fear God means something very simple and straightforward. It means fear God. Fear God. Be more concerned about consequences of asserting your will over his. Be concerned about saying, I don't need this, or I probably do not do need this, but probably not right now. We are creatures, and you will sense this, you are shaped every day by your fears. Sometimes it's fears of certain situations coming along. And so you work really hard to push them away, and you'll, you'll, you'll change your whole diary, your, your whole plans. Sometimes it's fear of people. You spend money, or you avoid places because of your fear of certain people. Those things elevate themselves to the place and position of Lord so that you won't go to certain places, you won't see certain things, and you're afraid of what people will say of you if you speak about Jesus. There are things that we fear. And the message that the angel comes and shouts at us is, Fear him. Fear him. He is the one who will define and shape you. Those things will pass away quickly. Run to him, let him remake you, any other threat that comes your way, anything that you're facing, cannot be allowed to touch what Jesus has done for you. So make that the defining fear in your life. And he cries out to the world, stop fearing all that, fear me. This is the eternal gospel, that you turn and worship me. You're worried that those things will create you. Guess who created you? I'm the one who created you. Fear me. This is wonderful because it's the eternal gospel. You know, sometimes we feel, you know, we're in a contemporary age, that means we need a new, fresh, contemporary gospel. Not according to the Lord. He says this is a contemporary age, therefore you need an eternal gospel. You need one that is big enough to carry all the problems, not just the ones that you and your little world can see. You need an eternal gospel. Second of all, we see fear God. Second of all, the the angels going out... The right's on the wall. We know where this is headed. If you're not part of God's gang, two words that are going to be written over you, and they're both there, they're both the same, so you can't miss it. Fallen. Fallen. Can you see it? Verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Remember, Babylon is sort of like a it's picture language. It's a big city that historically is full of people who hated God and wanted to do their own thing and thought nothing of obeying him. So in the book of Revelation, Babylon is like a picture of any world system or any personal life, any politics, any media, any ideas that have left God out and said, we'll do it our way, thank you very much. It's the totality of people who say, I don't need God, I can do it all on my own. And what word gets put before them twice? What's the word that twice gets said? 
What's it say there? Look at verse 8. Fallen. You look strong, but the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And in case we miss this, because we're stupid, fallen, fallen. He shouts it. Listen, it, it looks like that's where all the power is now. To make choices that have got nothing to do with who God is, what he's like, and that he is Lord, it looks, it's easier to do that now. In fact, we're told here that we, that we quite easily, and quick, quite quickly, drink in and get enticed to drink in the maddening wines of her adulteries. In other words, spiritual unfaithfulness sometimes is very appealing to us. There's things out there that want to claim the place that only God should have, and they taste good for a bit. And they're alluring and intoxicating. It's why I do my very best not to watch adverts on telly. And it's even worse if we've got the girls sitting there, because the whole advertising agent, this is just one example, the whole advertising industry is built and made on the premise that if we can create a sense of dissatisfaction in you guys, and then offer you a picture of heaven, and associate our product with it, you'll go and buy it. You'll be intoxicated by it. Anybody here not been sucked in once or twice? The whole thing is we will show you something you haven't got, so you want it, and you'll say, yeah, if I have it, I'll be alive. If I have it, my kids will shut up. Or if I'm happy, everything's wonderful. And suddenly, those things that aren't bad themselves become the thing that we love and trust. And we become, well, God becomes small. Do you see that? And I've picked on adverts because this is the time of year where you lot are tempted to spend too much and eat and drink too much and to get the perfect Christmas. Have any of you ever had the perfect Christmas? No. There have been just great gradations of how less well it went than you intended. Okay? Usually it's around about half past six in the morning when the kids are punching each other that I realise that the myth of the perfect Christmas is not there. Then you burn the turkey. Then somebody has too much to drink, says something or does something they shouldn't do. And then the credit card comes in and makes you pay for it all. There's just an example of how, well, the world's Babylon, the systems that say, live as if God isn't there. And it makes us mad. And the Lord says, we're going to come crushing down. Don't be fooled. See, in the Bible, it's the examples of Egypt and Babylon, those nations that seem to have such power. Rome in the first century. You can imagine the pressure of the Christians just to be like everybody else. We'll make it easy for you. And it's nice. Perhaps it's communism in the mid part of the 20th century. And we didn't think that was great. But over there, yes, no, we'll put in a big powerful world system and we won't need God anymore. Perhaps it's materialism, secular humanism that has got such sway here in the West. And the Lord says, they're all going to come crashing down. It will fall. It will make you pay. And you will be disappointed. Wake up. But thirdly, and quickly and finally, in this section here, life is forever, we see, in this section that runs all the way. And it's very vivid language. And I know some of you want me to unpack it, but if I want to get to the end of the chapter, I can't. And you'll have to ask me about it later. But there's a third angel, again, followed them and said, guess what, in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury. You're either, if you follow the beast and follow the worldly systems and trust the devil's lies, 
albeit uh, unknowingly but willingly diving into that, you are going to position your mark as one of the um, under the mark of the beast, which means that God will be angry. If you've got the mark of Jesus on you, the devil will be angry. So somebody somewhere is going to be angry with you. Which one would you rather it were? Would you rather put up with the devil's assaults on you for a little while, or would you rather have the wrath of the Almighty God who acts in total justice and whose declarations are final? Would you rather have him after you for eternity? And what we read, and I can't read through all the verses and go through them, but we have vivid pictures of the fact that you and I, each and every one of us in this room, are going to live forever. Everybody in speak is going to live forever. The only question is where? And the language is vivid. It's the language of a cup being filled up through a life of treating God as if he is nothing. It's a picture of that just being stored up. And a point will come where you have to drink your own medicine and it won't be um, pleasant. It's a picture of fire. And I know we have the pictures of hellfire, and it's all very scary. And those are images of a deeper spiritual truth. I don't know whether there's going to be physical fire or not. I don't think it will be. It will be a, it's a picture of being eternally consumed. Do you, sometimes you get into one of those downward spirals where your emotions are crashing in upon you. And you know it doesn't make sense, and you know it's not there, but sometimes it's through bitterness, or unforgiveness, or anger. And you know sometimes, sometimes it's your anger, when it takes a hold of you, it burns like a fire, doesn't it? And you become less and less human by the moment. And if it keeps on boiling, suddenly you explode, and it's just... It feels so right, yet you know it's so wrong, and everybody around you is watching, and it's just dehumanised and ugly, and you... There and in that moment, you're being burnt alive in your soul. Imagine that cranked up to the power ten. It's Jesus who is the most loving and most gentle person who has ever walked planet Earth and it was he who spoke most vividly and most clearly about the fire that never goes out and the worm that never dies. That speaks of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And can I tell you, as I've read this this week, it has changed what I've done this week. This is not a philosophical idea it has stopped me in the street and made me have to stop people in the street. I've seen people who have had a casual awareness of it and I've had to stop them and say, are you ready to meet God? We're not playing if this is true, are we? And God is sovereign and it is his job to call people but he uses his own people who've got a taste of this. It is not wrong to be scared and worried about what happens if you don't respond rightly to God. In fact, it's the most natural and normal thing in the face of the planet. But if he's yelling a warning, we will want to act accordingly. So please, please, If you love people, there are people the Lord has put, you, put in your life this week. But even if you haven't got the confidence to go and say, are you ready to meet Jesus? You can say, can you come and hear about how important the message of Christmas is next week? Let me introduce you to somebody who doesn't mind shouting and yelling a bit and can 
tell you clearly how important it is that you get ready to meet Jesus. It's at this bit where the, it, it's the most shocking and distasteful that we show whether or not we believe it to be true. It shows what must be the centre of our hope that this world one day will perish. That every soul in speak and who works in speak, who you rub shoulders with, who comes in through the knowers, who comes and does zumba, comes and does whatever, is an eternal soul. The fact that they will live forever is not in question, but where they will live forever is. And whilst that is up for grabs, we get busy. And so that is what the Lord is doing. He is shouting restlessly. The angels are screaming, Don't go there! Run to Jesus! And in verse 12, to believers who are just battered down by standing for Jesus, they're exhausted, he says, Hang in there, stay faithful. Verse 12, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, I'll say, who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. I know you're worn out, says the Lord to the churches who received this letter. I know it's a restless task. You're exhausted. And some of you lot are exhausted. It's just hard standing for Jesus. It's hard going back every day and believing and trusting in his his words. But look, there's a day when you will get your rest. Verse 13 again. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write, in other words, whenever it says in the Bible, write down, this is me to take the bank. Blessed are the, the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So if you aren't still here when that great day comes and Jesus comes with his gang to reclaim what is his, don't worry, you ain't missed out on the action. There is massive blessing for you. Ron, I don't know whether you're going to get another year. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. He's used to me yelling, he's asleep. That's fine. But if he meets the Lord before next year, he's blessed. For he will get rest. Do you believe that? I love that blessed. They aren't missing out. Who wouldn't want that? Who in this room wouldn't want blessing and rest? You say, how do I get it? Uh, How much? What do I have to pay? Uh, It's free. Just come to Jesus. It's free. And the Spirit promises this. Anyone who comes to me, I will in no way send away. You are not capable of doing enough, Christian. You are not capable of doing enough that God would reject you. No matter how bad your choice is, no matter how far you've strayed, you cannot do enough to get to the place where God cannot extend his grace to you now. It's that reassuring. But a day will come when enough's enough. And with my remaining three or four minutes, I've just got to very, very briefly and quickly do these last few verses. And I'm going to read the whole section and then just say one summary comment because we've run out of time. So, look down at verse 14. This is the time. This is when the moment comes. When all bets are off, when things are dealt with and it's set. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the throne, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he had... Uh, He too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. 
Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. Then the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So we come to that point after the Lord Jesus has declared his intention to reclaim what is own, after he has sent out the final warnings, this is all picture language, this isn't literal, it is picture language of what he is about to do, but this would not make for a good Hollywood film. Because even in the, the Aslan films, Aslan is standing at the top and he makes it look like a hard battle. And there's the queen like, winning over there and her minions and then he's like, it swings one way and swings the other. This is the most boring battle in the face of history. Because there's no sweat, there's no blood, there's no champion who's, oh, I don't know whether I can win the might. It's as simple as, Do want to do it again? Did you miss it? You see, a point will come where all the choices that you've made, the Lord, by virtue of the fact he dignifies you, will give you over to the consequences of those choices. He honours you. Your choices have value. But a, com- a point comes where no more choices can be made. And things will be done. He is God, you're not. And these two swings of the sickle, is that happening? The first one, I take it and understand it to be the Lord giving one final picture of him gathering in the harvest of his people. Easy as that. Did he break a sweat? No. Did he need to form a committee? No. Did he need to arrange the ranks? No. In that moment, when he chooses, when the time comes, it's not difficult. At any moment that he chooses, done. No fights. No arguments. No right of appeal. Done. And then he gathers in those with a sharp sickle again who are not his and he brings them to judgment. I know we're taught to believe that we have our lives in our own hands. You realise that that is not the case and I've told you this before sometimes on the number of occasions when I've been to um, uh, uh, an intensive care unit where somebody's life is hanging in the balance and it just takes one cleaner to bump the plug socket the life support machine stops and that person, utterly powerless, is gone. We build things around ourselves in our lives, like our bank accounts, like our gym attendance, like the good food that we eat and the nice warm houses and the the rule of law around us. We build things, all of which are good things, around us. But we put too much confidence in them. The only reason planet Earth is still running right now is to give people like you and me the chance to respond before that day. But on that day, it's done. It's just done. He reigns. This very moment, I know you've planned the rest of the day and you've planned the rest of the week, but you are utterly in the Lord's hands right now. What would any of you do if he suddenly went, now? Uh, I'd like to file a motion that says, no, gone. And it pains him to hold off. 
because every day he holds off a little bit longer, his people suffer a bit more. And every day he holds off a little bit longer, there's more evil and wicked done that dishonours his name. But he's burning with passion that people would have a chance now. Have you noticed how he brings his people into that suffering? Some of you are like, now would be good, thank you. But he's inviting you into the struggle and the suffering so that more can come in and be saved. But a time will come where the Lord says, enough is enough. And all those people who have been messing around and not responding to God's message, they do not know who they are dealing with. He will not even break a sweat. And the picture and the vividness for those, the picture here is of a bloodbath. Cut to pieces. Squashed, crushed. You do not mess around with the Lord of glory. He has your life, so your life in his hands now, and he always has done, whether you recognise it or not, and he always will do. So can I tell you, as strongly as I possibly can, today is a good day to trust him. Today is a really good day. Today, we've met something of who he really is. Today is a really good day to decide that this week, you're going to take this message out to people and be an angel. Forget the Christmas angels with the thing. Some of the kids will be Christmas angels. Be an angel, take this message out. Today is a good day in your heart to say, Lord, I want to fear you more than anything else. I want to stay faithful to you. Lord, forgive me through Jesus' blood of my adulteries, of my unfaithfulness, of my chasing after lesser things. Lord, please, today would be a good day for our church to resolve that this will be who we are. That we will be those standing with the King because we love the King and all that he's done for us. That we will be those who now, in the days of our flesh, while we've got a chance, will, will take up some of the suffering of what it means to be waiting with Jesus so more people can hear. We will be speaking. As clear as I can, for those of you who don't know where you are spiritually, for some of you, I've known you for a while, but sometimes I'm, I'm caused to wonder, do they love Jesus? I'll try and make it as clear as I can. This is a really helpful way. Have you got a conversion story? Have you got a story of how God invaded your life so you became new and wanted new things? If you don't have a conversion story, it's because you haven't been converted yet. That would be a crack. Today would be a cracking day to change that. Today would be a great day to say, I gave myself to Jesus. And he forgave my sin. And I love him. And I cast myself upon him. So in a minute we're going to sing. We're going to sing a couple of songs. We're going to sing about how God is undefeatable. We're going to sing about how God reigns. We're going to sing about what we're going to be singing about for all eternity. So I don't know how your singing was early on. But if you love Jesus, in faith, sing till you're hoarse. Is that alright? Let's stand and sing together.